Hello, so this is the third discussion in our series on how women won the vote in Britain. The old story that women's votes were won in Britain by the suffragettes just isn't standing up to historical investigation. The suffragettes had nothing to do with the final campaign in 1916 and 17 to get votes through Parliament. And nor is it true that when the suffragettes were founded in 1903, the women's campaign had run out of steam. In fact, British women had taken great strides towards their emancipation. And by the 1890s, a majority of the members of Parliament were in favour of giving women the vote. But as we discovered last time, by 1903 there was a very specific problem. And it was this that Emmeline Pankhurst's suffragettes had to solve. The challenge wasn't to win public opinion, that would take years. Nor was it to win the MPs over, that had been done already. It was to persuade government ministers to do anything about it. So today we're going to look at the tactics the suffragettes came up with in the first years of their campaign. And we find something very striking. What we discover is that every one of those tactics seemed so badly thought through that they did more harm than good. In fact, they were so bad that you start to wonder whether the Pankhursts had some other agenda altogether. Hello. Good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. The problem for women's votes by 1900 was not that there wasn't a majority in Parliament. There was. It was that, however surprising it seems to us now, there was hardly any interest in women's votes in the wider public. In fact, many prominent women were actively against the idea. They wanted to be equal to men, but different from them. And as a result, and this is the key thing, neither Tory nor Liberal leaderships were interested in doing anything about it. The precise problem campaigners for women's votes faced was how to convince, not the public, which would take many years, but a government that it had more to gain than to lose from giving women the vote. On Sunday the 10th of November 1903, six women met at 62 Nelson Street in Manchester. They agreed to form yet another society for women's suffrage. There were already many dozens of similar societies. This group were all members of the local Labour Party and wanted to call themselves the Women's Labour Representation Committee. Catchy. But that name was already taken, which for the Pankers, as we'll see, was just as well. Anyway, they decided to call themselves the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU. Within a couple of years, the Daily Mail had nicknamed its members, and it should be noted those of several similar societies, the Suffragettes. Now, we should be very clear exactly what these six women were setting up. Whatever the later story, we now know that they were not intending to be a breakaway group from Millicent Fawcett's National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS, set up in 1897 to coordinate the suffrage campaign. And at first, neither did they have any intention of doing anything militant. Meeting that day were Emmeline Pankhurst and two of her daughters, Christabel and Sylvia. 
also a woman called Theresa Billington, who was a teacher and a union activist, and Helen Harker from the Independent Labour Party. There was also one other, Rachel Scott, about whom we don't know very much. The black sheep of the Pankhurst family, their third daughter, Adela, says she was also there. But since she was always written out of the official history of the WSBU, we can't be certain. The rest of the women had apparently met at the Manchester Independent Labour Party, the ILP, forerunner of the modern Labour Party. Actually, just keep it simple, we'll just call it the Labour Party, though it was more complicated than that. Emmeline Pankhurst had gained some prominence in Labour circles by opposing the Boer War, which had been fought in South Africa between 1898 and 1902. What she was now in fact setting up was simply a women's committee within the Labour Party's Manchester branch. Their objective was not to smash windows or chain women to railings. What they intended to do was raise awareness of women's franchise and other socialist issues among the working-class textile mill girls of Lancashire. Hence the name they chose. Not another women's franchise league, but a social and political union. Well, at first, nobody could care less. The Pankhurst family friend, the Labour leader, Keir Hardy, who was in fact a long-standing supporter of women's votes, happened to edit a socialist newspaper. But he didn't write a single thing about the new organisation. 18 months later, in the summer of 1905, a visitor to Manchester found that the WSPU still had barely 30 members. Now, it's important to say here that the story most of us were taught about the WSPU, the well-known story about the militant Pankhurst achieving women's votes by sheer bloody-minded sacrifice, well, that story was very consciously and deliberately invented by former suffragettes in what became known as the Suffragette Fellowship during the 20s and 30s. And we'll take a look at it in a later discussion. What's important to remember here is that it was an invention and its fabrication has been well documented by modern historians, women historians. Even the nickname Suffragettes didn't originally mean just the WSPU. It was coined by the Daily Mail and used to refer to militants from any society, including the Women's Freedom League, the Women's Tax Resistance League and even the Men's Political Union. We now know much more about what really happened within the WSPU from research, mostly by women historians, that's come out over the last 30 years. So let's clear the table of all the old debris and start with a fresh pot of coffee. The Pankhurst lived in Manchester, which was a city and a region unlike any other in Britain. The so-called industrial revolution of the previous century and a half had in reality been nothing of the kind. It's John's pet subject and we will come back to it at the History Café. Most British people were still working in small workshops, often in family units. But around Manchester, the particular structure of the cotton industry had created a number of large mills, and these were often worked by a largely female workforce. And here, the sense of a distinct working class was stronger than most other places, and perhaps especially among the women. No surprise then that socialism was also stronger around Manchester and that Keir Hardy's Independent Labour Party, founded in 1893, made strong headway here among the working class. The Pankhursts had joined the Labour Party in 1894. Now, the Manchester Labour Party was a very innovative group of people. Its best-known action unfolded in June 1896 at a location with the unlikely name of Boggart Hole Clough. Sounds like something from J.K. Rowling. I love the name, and this is such a good story. Bogot Hole Clough was, and still is, 190 acres of hilly parkland in the north of Manchester. The Labour Party had begun to use it for public meetings. In 1896, the right-wing Manchester City Council bought the land 
and try to suppress these Labour Party meetings, finding anyone who tried to speak. Well, it all backfired horribly on the council. When it arrested and tried to fine the Labour Party speakers, the accused refused to pay their fines, had to be sent to prison. Their lawyer was one Richard Pankhurst, husband of Emmeline. He even suggested that he and his wife would be prepared to go to prison too. Now, the publicity all this won for the Labour Party was more than anything money could have bought. In June 1896, Emmeline Pankhurst got up to speak about her socialist convictions and she too was duly arrested. The case against her was dismissed she went free, probably because she was a woman. But the publicity was terrific and now she began to chair the meetings in the clough and the crowds grew from thousands to tens of thousands. At one point, Richard Pankhurst collected 431 witnesses ready to testify at court cases that these meetings presented no threat to public order. Had they all been called to testify in a case, it would have brought the Manchester courts to a standstill. By now, the local MPs were complaining to the Tory Home Secretary about what the local council were up to. Why, they asked, for example, were the men who refused to pay their fines not being treated as political prisoners, detained under what was called then the first category, which had various privileges like wearing their own clothes and having books and visitors. Treating them as common criminals was just giving the Labour Party yet more publicity. Well, the Home Secretary, Tory, took note and eventually forced the council to allow the meetings at Boggart Hole Clough, so long as they were requested in the proper way. So Boggart Hole Clough was a triumph for the Manchester Labour Party, but they also had other unusual tactics. They held meetings on street corners, interrupted other parties' meetings, heckled their speakers and occasionally got arrested for it. They chalked slogans on pavements and they hawked their literature through the city. So the point is, well, you've already guessed it, but a few years later, the Pankhurst WSPU started to do exactly the same things in their campaign for women's votes. They weren't doing anything new. What they were doing was copying what they'd seen the Manchester Labour Party do in the 1890s. But by 1903, Emmeline Pankhurst was actually beginning to grow impatient with the Labour Party. The real story of the suffragettes, rather than the one invented in the 1920s and 30s by the Suffragette Fellowship, begins in the Manchester Labour Party in the 1890s. It was there that most of the early tactics of militant protests were first tried out. A prominent member of the local Labour Party, Emmeline Pankhurst, had first-hand experience of the publicity that could be generated, for example, if you went to prison, for refusing to pay a fine for a minor offence. Now, Emmeline's husband, Richard Pankhurst, died in 1898. The Labour Party went on fighting its many battles, but women's votes were a long way down its agenda, as they were indeed for all the political parties. So in November 1903, Emmeline Pankhurst set up her WSPU, a pressure group within the Manchester Labour Party that was going to work, among other things, for women's votes among the poor women of the Manchester area. They spoke at local trades councils, debating societies, branches of the Women's Cooperative Guild. They held outdoor meetings. With men from the Labour Party acting as bodyguards. Quite right too. WSPU relations with the Labour Party, however, grew steadily worse. The problem was that the Labour Party wanted to go one better than women's votes. At the start of the 20th century, many men still couldn't vote. So Labour members campaigned for adult suffrage, votes for all adult men and women. It was a visionary plan. But in 1903, it looked a very long way off. And Emmeline Pankhurst was a woman in a hurry. 
Like the other suffrage campaigners, she calculated that campaigning for full adult suffrage would just delay getting the vote for women for years and years. Better to campaign in the meantime for some women to get votes, for example on the same basis as men. The issue suddenly became urgent in 1905 with the tottering collapse of the Tory government. By October of that year, it looked close to resignation. Now, if the Liberals took over, they would call a general election. And after more than two decades, a majority Liberal government looked a real possibility. It presented a new opportunity for women's votes. Surely a Liberal government could be pushed into action, even if a Tory one couldn't. But how? Remember what we found at our last discussion? There was, and had been since the 1890s and probably even before, a majority in the House of Commons in favour of giving women the vote. That wasn't the problem. A long series of individual MPs had put forward private members' bills. But without government backing, they were easily headed off. And no government wanted to act on women's votes, because there was very little interest, either for or against, in society at large, or in the press. In fact, as many women were campaigning against the vote as for it. So there was very little incentive for any government to do anything about it. Getting an overwhelming majority of the public to support women's votes would take years. The alternative was to target pressure very precisely on government ministers, somehow make their life uncomfortable, compel them to introduce a government measure. What the WSPU decided to do, therefore, was to change its tactics it would employ the methods tried and tested by the Manchester Labour Party, but this time it would use them specifically to put pressure on government ministers, make them give women the vote. They had to create a situation in which the government had more to lose than to gain by opposing them. On the 13th of October 1905, leading Liberal Edward Grey was booked to speak at Manchester's Free Trade Hall. It was on the very site of the Peterloo Massacre back in 1819. 30-something Winston Churchill was with him, having recently left the Tories and joined the Liberals. Emmeline Pankhurst's eldest daughter, Christabel, took the opportunity to go along with Annie Kenny, an older mill girl and trade unionist that she'd met at the Labour Party meetings. And using the usual Labour Party tactics, they began to heckle, shouting out. They demanded to know if the Liberals got into government whether they would support votes for women. Well, the audience, mostly men, erupted in anger. It was bad enough when men heckled, but women? Interrupting the speaker? Whatever next. When the two women tried to unfurl a banner, they were just thrown out. There was quite a crowd outside. Christabel tried to make a speech. Now there was a scuffle with the police, and Christabel Pankhurst and Annie Kenny were arrested. Of course, they were delighted about that. They went to prison for a few days, because, of course, following the usual Labour Party tactics, they refused to pay their fines. So far, so unsurprising. All this was meat and drink to Manchester socialists. The Manchester Labour Party launched its usual campaign to protest. A couple of members, Flora Drummond and Theresa Billington, got together the usual large crowd to meet the two protesters when they came out of Strangeways prison. And a week later, the two women were back at the Free Trade Hall. But this time, they were on the platform at a Labour Party meeting. It was all great publicity for women's votes. So this was normal Labour Party tactics and applying them to a new cause? Well, not quite. Because, you see, Christabel Pankhurst and Annie Kenny had not been arrested, as Labour Party people often were, for interrupting a speaker or holding a meeting on the pavement. They'd been arrested because Christabel had, allegedly, spat at a policeman, a charge she didn't in fact deny. 
Now, Christabel was then halfway through a law degree and she would have been well aware, in fact we may guess she actually calculated, that spitting at a policeman was an arrestable offence. Some reports even said that she had actually hit the officer in the mouth. Now, this is important. It had been quite difficult for women to get themselves sent to prison in the Labour Party protests. You remember Emmeline Pankhurst had been arrested at Boggart Hall Clough, but had been released without going to jail, probably because she was a woman. But that was no good if you wanted publicity. So Christabel had apparently taken a calculated risk and committed an offence for which there was no choice but to sentence her to a fine and if she refused to pay, to send her to prison. Well, the incident won the WSPU plenty of space in the local newspapers. But it immediately highlighted a problem if you took this kind of approach. A number of the WSPU's small band of supporters now quit. They pointed out that working-class women would now be afraid to attend their meetings. They could hardly claim that they were the innocent victims of male oppression if their women leaders were getting arrested for breaking the everyday laws of the land and assaulting policemen. Now these critics have put their finger on a real problem, and one that the WSPU, the suffragettes, never in fact solved. Getting men sent to jail wasn't difficult and created few headlines, but getting women sent to jail usually required actually breaking the law. But that in itself was a gift to the opponents of women's votes. Mm. It was above all a problem if you wanted to persuade government ministers to change their policy, which was the only thing that would get you anywhere. Breaking the law handed the government the perfect excuse. In fact, it made it absolutely necessary for the government not to do what you demanded. Governments never make concessions to lawbreakers. So right from the start, the suffragettes had caught themselves in a trap. We've been trying to get to the bottom of the story that it was the suffragettes who won the vote for British women. That was certainly what ex-suffragettes said later in the 20s and 30s, but all kinds of evidence says something different. The WSPU borrowed tactics tried and tested in the Manchester Labour Party. The key idea was to get yourself arrested. That would make plenty of headlines. But for a woman to get to prison, she actually had to break the law seriously enough not to get let off with a caution. And the spectacle of women campaigners breaking the law gave the government the perfect excuse not to give women the vote. For the WSPU, it was catch-22. The Pankers tried to argue that constitutional change had always in the past required breaking the law. Many people at the time accepted the argument, but few historians these days do. As historian Martin Pewis pointed out, the key to success for the earlier agitators lay in their relationship with the parliamentary forces rather than their ability to coerce from outside. You had to work with politicians, not try to bludgeon them. In practice, what was apparent right from the start was that the WSPU's strategy, breaking the law deliberately to provoke governments into conceding the vote, would run the risk of backfiring badly. In January 1906, the Liberals won the general election with a landslide. There were 401 Liberals in the new House of Commons, a majority of 125. Two-thirds of them were said to be in favour of women's votes. Edward Grey became Foreign Secretary, which was a disaster, as we see in our series on why Britain went to war in 1914. It was the first majority Liberal government for over 20 years. 
The Pankhurst now took the decision to put pressure on the new ministers as quickly and as immediately as possible. Organising socialist meetings with the mill girls of Manchester wouldn't do any longer. The place to be now was London. Now, Christabel Pankhurst was still finishing her law degree in Manchester. So Annie Kenny, the former teacher and mill girl she'd gone to prison with, and Christabel's would-be artist sister Sylvia Pankhurst, were packed off to the capital to make some attention-grabbing noise. They tried to book Trafalgar Square, but the police turned them down. So they came up with a plan to organise a meeting at Westminster's Town Hall, newly named the Caxton Hall, and then to march to Parliament. Their march was scheduled for the 16th of February 1906 to coincide with King Edward VII's speech at the state opening of Parliament. They'd booked the best speaker they knew, Mrs Emmeline Pankhurst. Caxton Hall was enormous. It seated 700. WSPU could barely afford postage stamps, let alone a vast meeting hall. So it was an extraordinarily daring thing for Sylvia and Annie Kenny to attempt. In the end, their Labour Party friend, Keir Hardy, borrowed the money and there was enough left over even to bus a contingent of working-class women up from London's East End. Very good. As it transpired, they were not the only ones who turned up. It was said that a number of well-to-do London society ladies borrowed their maids' clothes and sneaked in to see this socialist firebrand from Manchester for themselves. Shocking. Emmeline Pankhurst bitterly criticised her daughter Sylvia for booking such a ridiculously large space, but she arrived to find the hall packed to capacity. Emily never appreciated anything Sylvia did. News arrived during the meeting that the King's speech outlining the new government's plans had made no mention at all of women's votes. That was no surprise at all, of course. The women in the hall duly set off in parties of 20 to try to get into the strangers' gallery in the House of Commons. They spent much of the rest of the day queuing outside in the rain. Much more successful was the march. Well, actually it was a stunt staged specially for a Daily Mirror photographer covering just the 200 metres in Westminster's back streets from St James's Park tube station to Caxton Hall. The Daily Mirror was then a new picture paper aimed at a female audience and the spectacle of the march was too good to miss. Fake news or not... It was excellent publicity for the WSPU. The Caxton Hall meeting was a breakthrough. Just as important was the support, again brought to the Pankhurst by the Labour Party leader, Keir Hardy, of a wealthy young couple in their 30s, Frederick and Emmeline Pethick-Lawrence. Too many Emmelines. Frederick was a wealthy lawyer from a family of Liberal MPs, but Emmeline Pethick-Lawrence was a socialist, and from the time of their marriage in 1901, the couple had campaigned for left-wing causes. Actually, Mrs Pethick-Lawrence was unimpressed by Mrs Pankhurst. But then she met the young Annie Kenny, the Labour Party teacher and former mill worker. Annie Kenny won over Emmeline Pethick-Lawrence and persuaded her to meet Sylvia Pankhurst. The result was that the Pethick-Lawrences agreed to provide the WSPU with a generous new headquarters alongside their own smart Clements Inn apartment not far from St Paul's Cathedral. In June 1906, Christabel Pankhurst finished her law degree and moved up to live with the Pethick Lawrences. Very quickly now, with more financial backing from the Pethick Lawrences, the WSPU began to flourish. In 
In 1906, the WSBU moved to London with help from funds provided by Keir Hardy, the Labour Party leader, and into headquarters provided by a wealthy couple who were friends of his. The task now was to persuade the new Liberal government to do what a majority of MPs already wanted, give women the vote. Once she'd completed her law degree, Christabel Pankhurst emerged as the WSPU's strategist. She came up with a new approach. She calculated that the best way to push the Liberal government into action was not to meet them and try to reason with them, it was to oppose them at the polls. Which seems counterintuitive. But in the early 20th century, there were far more by-elections for parliamentary seats than there are nowadays. Now, the Liberals had won the general election of 1906 by a landslide. It meant that the Liberals had scraped victories in many seats, like, for example, Cockermouth, not far from Carlisle, in what used to be Cumberland, which they had not held before, or not for a very long time. And in these seats, their new MPs were very vulnerable. Christabel's policy was therefore to try to defeat every Liberal candidate at every by-election. It didn't matter whether or not the candidate supported women's votes, the important thing was to make sure the Liberal Party began to lose seats. That surely would make the ministers sit up and listen. This policy was launched at the by-election in August 1906 in Cockermouth. The other suffragists were all campaigning on behalf of the heavily mustachioed Labour candidate who'd vaguely expressed some support for women's votes. But the WSPU, led by Christabel, campaigned against the equally extravagantly mustachioed Liberal. In the end... The seat was won by the similarly mustachioed and recently knighted Tory. The WSPU congratulated itself on scoring a success. They'd struck a blow at the government. Now they would follow the same policy at every by-election where a Liberal was standing. Actually, things weren't quite so simple. The Tory moustache had won in Cockermouth mainly because the anti-Tory vote had been split between Liberal and Labour moustaches. Where have I heard that before? Nothing to do with the WSBU at all. And there were serious downsides to the new policy. In seat after seat, the Pankhurst WSPU found itself campaigning against the Liberals, who were often the candidates who supported women's votes, and instead effectively supporting the candidate, usually the Tory, who opposed them. Madness. It was very confusing for the voters. They were treated to the spectacle of different women's suffrage societies campaigning against each other. It did nothing at all to improve the reputation of the WSPU or of the campaign for women's votes in the country at large. In fact, worse than that, it made the women look illogical and confused, unfit, as their opponents delightedly pointed out, to take part in politics at all. Like the strategy of getting arrested, the by-election strategy had the potential to do as much harm as good. Mm -hmm. It just makes you wonder whether the WSPU had some other agenda. Hmm because the new strategy was never going to have any impact on the Liberal leadership. It was a question of simple mathematics. Not something the historians do very much. It's true that the Liberals failed to make any gains at by-elections in this Parliament. In fact, they eventually lost 12 seats to the Conservatives Mm -hmm. and 5 to Labour and the other parties, so that's 17 in total. But, you remember, the Liberals had a majority of 125, one of the highest for an individual party in the entire century. Well, Liberal Ministers are never going to lose much sleep about losing 17 marginal seats. Anyway, they won in the other 38 of their seats that came up for the by-elections. Actually, they could have afforded to lose all of those too and would still have had a majority just about. So, far from bullying the Liberal government into supporting women's votes, the WSPU tactic of opposing Liberal candidates at every by-election, 
like the tactic of breaking the law, simply had the effect of making it significantly less likely the Liberal leaders would support them. Exactly the opposite of the one thing they needed to achieve. The WSPU's new tactic also had the effect of severing the connection with the Labour Party, which had helped the WSPU get started in the first place. Pankhurst didn't care. 1907, they declared that the WSPU was now affiliated to no party at all. They pointed out, quite rightly, that the Labour Party was committed to adult suffrage, which wouldn't happen for years. The WSPU were campaigned to win the principle to get some votes for some women, on the same basis as men. But this too's a strange decision, and it sparked a long debate among historians of women's franchise. The issue is that, as we've seen in practice, the WSPU policy of opposing Liberal candidates and ignoring Labour ones simply benefited the Tories. And much later, in the 1930s, Sylvia Pankhurst, who always remained a committed socialist, claimed that this was no accident. It was in reality, she claimed, part of a deliberate policy by her mother and her eldest sister Christabel to move away from socialism and toward the Tories, at least from the time they relocated to London in 1906. And we do know that from 1907, Christabel Pankhurst began a private correspondence with Arthur Balfour, leader of the Tory party, even though he refused to commit himself to women's votes. If breaking the law and opposing Liberals at by-elections look like tactical blunders, corresponding with the leader of the Tory party looks more like a deliberate policy. Now, if it was, aligning the WSPU with the Tories would be a very strange thing to do. Not only because the WSPU declared it was above party, but because the Tories were, of all the parties in 1906, the least enthusiastic for women's votes. Mm. By 1910, in fact, a majority of Tory MPs had shifted their views and were now, for reasons we'll see, against giving women the vote. But despite that, there's absolutely no doubt that by 1914, the WSPU was actively campaigning for a Tory government in the election that was expected the next year. It's all a bit of a mystery. And like the tactic of breaking the law, it did the cause of women's votes no good at all, rather the opposite. It makes you wonder whether perhaps the WSPU had some other agenda besides winning votes for women. Well, we'll take a look at that next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs> <laughs>